to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors discuss major issues or read their reviews and creative writing. My name's Georgina Arnott, and I'm the Assistant Editor at ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version, or $60 for print plus online. Hello, this is Dan Disney. One of the world's most illustrious poetry competitions, the Peter Porter Poetry Prize, opens on the 3rd of July and will remain open until the 9th of October. Last year I received the prize, this year with the magnificent poets Felicity Plunkett and Lachlan Brown, I'm fortunate enough to be judging the Peter Porter Poetry Prize. Of course, we look forward to receiving and reading your entries. For details about the 2024 Porter Poetry Prize, worth a total of $10,000 in prize money, visit the Australian Book Review website. This week we're joined by regular ABR contributor Joel Dean, poet, novelist, journalist and former speechwriter to Victorian Premiers Steve Brax and John Brumby. Joel's third novel, Judas Boys, has just been published by Hunter. It has been described as a suburban de profundis. In the September issue of ABR, Joel Dean returns to the suburbs for a searching account of what he dubs the Great Australian Intemperance. He argues that the rise of the My Place movement, conspiracy theories, neo-Nazis and sovereign citizen groups reflect an escalating economic and political insecurity in Australia, one which we Melburnians had a foretaste of during Victoria's epic lockdowns. The article is our cover feature in September. Joel Dean. The Great Australian Intemperance The stumping of Johnny Bairstow reminded me of reaction chains. Bairstow, in case you didn't waste winter nights watching the ashes, was the English batsman controversially stumped by Australian wicketkeeper Alex Carey during a second test at Lord's. Pandemonium ensued with the poobars of the Malabone Cricket Club berating the Australian team during a lunch break as they filed through the holiest of holies, the long room. The brouhaha led news bulletins around the cricketing world. Even the Prime Ministers of Australia and the old enemy weighed in. As expected, social media went ballistic. Most posts were standard fare, grumpy middle-aged men staunchly defending their team or condemning the other. But one intervention reminded me of a lecture Professor William Davies gave for the London Review of Books. The lecture, published in the LRB in March, ruminated on how so-called reaction chains damaged public debate. Reaction chains, according to Davies, are cases where the social media responses to an incident, such as the slap actor Will Smith meted out to comedian Chris Rock, at the 2022 Oscars, snowballs, and almost everyone with a smartphone seems to weigh in to cancel or be woke or thumb whatever missive is likely to generate the most attention. 
seasoned characters, Davies said, such as former Murdoch editor Piers Morgan, are cynically aware that what will keep them in the spotlight is the force, distinctiveness and watchability of their knee-jerk responses, which are essentially designed to ignite reaction chains. Within minutes of the Johnny Besto dismissal, Piers Morgan seemed determined to prove the Davies thesis, taking to Twitter two shitposts about the spirit of cricket. Morgan's knee-jerk response provoked an immediate reaction from sleep-deprived Australians. And unsurprisingly, the Aussie baiting continued for weeks in an increasingly asinine reaction chain. My concern here is not the much ado about a stumping but the social behaviour it reveals. As Davies said, digital platforms such as Twitter are anti-forgiveness machines by design. They are designed to hook users on an addictive cycle of doom scrolling and shitposting as we overreact for and against everything from slaps to stumpings. Most importantly, Because users respond more to outrage, digital platforms tend to amplify conflict. With Bearstow, the conflict was largely benign, but it can be malignant. As Davies explained, much of the anxiety promoted by today's reaction economy consists in the possibility that in our desperate hunt for feedback and our need to give feedback to others, we allow ourselves to be steered in directions we did not consent to and may not wish to go. We are drawn towards controversy, absurd public spectacles, endless mutating memes, trolling, etc. What Davies alluded to with etc., was the conspiracy theories that swirl online and occasionally spill over into the real world. Before COVID-19, these often violent incidents, such as Pizzagate, were largely an American phenomenon. However, the social traumas of COVID, combined with the economic traumas of neoliberalism, changed all that. During the first two years of COVID, many Australians, especially those of us who lived through Victoria's epic lockdowns, found themselves in a claustrophobic new world where each Groundhog Day revolved around the ritual of watching marathon media conferences about case numbers. People responded to this anxiety in a variety of ways. Some exercised, some binged, some baked, and others raged. Unbottled rage is why viral online conspiracies increasingly have real-world consequences in Australia. I believe this because I felt its consequences and its repercussions. In fact, you could say conspiracy theories cancelled my birthday. Let me explain. Normally, My family stages an open house to mark a birthday. Poached chicken sandwiches, sushi and cakes are served, coffees, chocolates and drinks are consumed, and family members mill about in the kitchen and spill into the lounge and courtyard, 
while our portly dog Berkeley loiters for scraps. COVID interrupted these clan gatherings, but they were slated to return until two family members fell out. In a nutshell, one relative refused to be vaccinated. The other disagreed, and things became heated. Long story short, one family member no longer wants to see the other. This civil war left me with a choice. I could invite one warring faction to the birthday party, or I could invite neither, or I could cool the whole thing off. I cancelled. There is far more to this familial Brexit than my sketchy outline suggests. It is not just about cabin fever from shutdowns and culture wars over the pandemic. The pandemic may have been the trigger, but the murky, multifaceted genesis of the rupture goes back decades. Much the same can be said of the societal conflagrations that flared up in the aftermath of the summer of 2019-20. That's the apocalyptic December and January when monstrous bushfires caused the skies of southeastern Australia to glow orange-red and, as in a climate change Dunkirk, caused the Royal Australian Navy to rescue holidaymakers from the beaches of Malakuta. Likewise, there is a multifaceted source of the collective rage firing everything from the so-called freedom protests that erupted in Melbourne in 2021, the hateful campaigns against transgender rights and drag queens, the mainstreaming of neo-Nazis, the crypto-racist dog whistles against the First Nations voice to Parliament, and the rise of sovereign citizen groups. Yes, COVID is an accelerant of the unrest. After all, as my family demonstrates, the claustrophobia and anxiety of COVID lockdowns inflamed conspiracy theories and conflict. But, much like the rage that drove the rise of Donald Trump and Brexit and the storming of the United States Capitol, the social and economic fuel for these social bushfires was lying about waiting to spark long before Australia's first recorded COVID case in January 2020. Historically, Australian governments tended towards the parental. They liked telling their citizens what to do. The universalist tendency of Australian governments, evident in past and present laws on everything from voting to drinking to seatbelts to smoking to healthcare to superannuation, reflects the collectivism that drove many of the best and worst acts during the infancy of our federation, such as the arbitration system, best, and the white Australia policy, worst. That tendency began to change during the reform period of the Hawke and Keating governments. Arguably, the turning point was the Keating government's Working Nation white paper, Released in 1994, Working Nation included ambitious strategies to create a more inclusive society, but also, for the first time since 1945, stopped short of committing to full employment. Under Working Nation, 
unemployment was no longer a societal issue. It was an individual issue to be solved by market forces. But after John Howard was elected Prime Minister in 1996, Keating's inclusive society was abandoned by the Commonwealth and the unemployed became fiscal cannon fodder, used as a buffer to manage inflation. The Labor movement, meanwhile, lost its nerve. Backing away from the social and economic progress embodied in the Prices and Income Accord, former Labor leader Simon Crean, speaking to me in a 2022 interview, explained the machinations. Quote, Once we lost in 96, the union started saying, Oh, you know, the accord held us back. This bullshit argument. And then the argument became with the Rudd and Gillard government about patent bargaining, moving away from the very principles that took it forward. Everyone said the accords passed its prime. That was almost a given. So with Labor retreating from the progressive vehicle of the accord, and the coalition holding power for 20 years, between 1996 and 2022, Australian governments have, while mouthing weasel words like mutual obligation, kept telling their citizens what to do while, in return, doing less for them. The low watermark of this one-way traffic came during the pandemic lockdowns of 2020, when the Morrison government partly privatised the economic stimulus package by, instead of properly supporting people in financial strife, allowing 3.4 million Australians to drain $35.8 billion from their superannuation funds, putting millions of low-income earners at greater risk of retiring in poverty. Rating superannuation was a quick fix that failed. What the Commonwealth could have done instead was begin to tackle intergenerational inequities such as negative gearing, underinvestment in social housing and the gig economy. But like every other government since 2001, the Morrison government squibbed, which is one of the reasons why, in addition to corporate profiteering and the war in Ukraine, the Albanese government is confronted by a cost-of-living crisis. According to a Resolve political monitor, carried out for the age in July, 51% of respondents said they would struggle to meet an unexpected expense. That's up from 41% in February. What polls such as these point to, other than the medium-term issue of inflation, is the fact that the economic well-being of working Australians is in long-term decline. It wasn't always this way. Up until the global financial crisis, Australian middle-income earners were comparatively better off than their British and US counterparts, who had suffered decades of real-wage stagnation. After the GFC, though, business profits soared while workers' wages stagnated and successive governments allowed the housing bubble to harden into a housing crisis and the Reserve Bank promised to not increase interest rates and raise them 12 times 
and intergenerational disadvantage was ignored, and instead of tackling climate change, the coalition resorted to tricky accounting methods to avoid cutting carbon emissions. What this meant was that governments stopped holding up their end of the quid pro quo that underwrote the great Australian fair go. They created too many holes in the social safety net and stopped intervening in the market in the interests of the community through investments such as public housing. As a result, many Australians, especially low-income earners, were entitled to feel they weren't getting enough in return for putting up with nagging parental governments. In addition, the mythology of the Australian Fair Go was exposed by a series of scandals involving everything from corporate wage theft to the illegalities of robo-debt to the criminal misconduct of PwC. These failures damaged the social licence of government at a time when Australia was entering, as the historian Tony Judd foresaw in 2011, and I quote, an age of insecurity, economic insecurity, physical insecurity, political insecurity. That's why some angry Australians are beginning to sound like angry Americans. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the extremist trying to do a Donald Trump and hijack the US Democrat Party, understands this grassroots anger. Speaking to the New Yorker in June, Kennedy said, and I quote again, everybody realises they're not living in a democracy anymore. They've lost sovereignty in their lives and their futures are hopeless. I think it all flows from a cynicism and despair that flows from this corrupt merger of state corporate power. Now, I would like to say Kennedy is wrong, but he has a point. As Quinn Slobodian points out in Globalists, quote, the neoliberal project was focused on designing institutions not to liberate markets, but to encase them, to inoculate capitalism against the threat of democracy. That is why it should come as no surprise, for example, that the latest generation of artificial intelligence was unleashed by the same libertarian billionaires responsible for the proliferation of reaction chains. So without any regard for the rights or intellectual property of working people, it doesn't matter that AI writing tools only work because they, without credit or payment, are fed the pilfered work of generations of writers, then, like a food processor, create something stolen but sort of new by liquefying authorship. In this new Gilded Age, it seems that all that matters is the aggregation of data, capital, power. Like Elon Musk and his runaway self-driving Teslas, tech bros take no responsibility for the damage they cause. All they seem to care about, other than building their own private Jerichos in New Zealand, or hacking the human body so they can live forever, all they seem to care about is being first. It turns out that futurist Jerome Lanier was right in You Are Not a Gadget when he worried that the combination of aggregated humanity and economic hardship could create 
fascist-style mobs. The mob reaction to lockdowns in Melbourne is a case in point. Part of the problem with lockdowns was that public health is, for good reason, the most parental-minded arm of Australian government. I know this because in the early 1990s, I spent three years as a media officer for the Victorian Health Department's public health unit. Working with people like then-Chief Health Officer Dr Graham Rauch, I was struck by how they continually balanced public health and private rights. The choices they made, such as whether to involuntarily hospitalise an HIV-positive street worker, were often agonising. During the cost-cutting of the then-Kennett government, for example, public health staff took extreme steps, including redundancies to protect frontline HIV services. Public health, in other words, operates like the Australian governments of the parental era, defined by collectivism. Yet many Australians, especially casual and gig workers, live in a neoliberal marketplace defined by individualism. There was always going to be trouble during lockdowns, therefore, because the two groups exist in different eras, if not worlds. However, the great Australian intemperance is not just a domestic creation. It has American genetics. Take the war on woke, for example. Countless US politicians, most notably Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, have gained mileage by playing chicken little and claiming that, in essence, Western civilization is threatened by non-binary pronouns. This confected rage has, like a contagion, travelled to Britain, where the Orwellian New Higher Education Freedom Speech Act will, rather than protect free speech, constrain free thought, because, as Professor Amir Srinivasan pointed out in the LRB in June, it will make it harder for the Academy to weed out, quote, cranks and shills due to, quote, disciplinary competence. The act will aid and abet misinformation, allowing cranks and shills to, as Trump's former Svengali Steve Bannon put it, flood the zone with shit. In Australia, it should come as no surprise that the war on woke is one of the current hobby horses of Rupert Murdoch's altar boys, who are well practiced in zone flooding. To understand the hyperventilation surrounding wokeness, go back to Davies' reaction chain's thesis. If all that matters is reaction then, to bastardise Marshall McLuhan, outrage is the message. Who cares what people are enraged about? Stumping slaps wokeness so long as they are engaged. Of course, it helps if there's a grain of truth in your manufactured outrage. For instance, an argument could be made, not by me, that the Australians should have been more sporting and recalled the strain, Johnny Bairstow. Likewise, the black and white responses to human frailty shown by progressives and conservatives are as counterproductive and narcissistic as identity politics. In the conclusion of his LRB lecture, Davies turns to Hannah Arendt for an answer, suggesting that forgiveness is the best way to, 
quote, break free of perpetual reaction and counter-reaction. That's a nice thought, but understanding comes before forgiveness. The best way to avoid being sucked in by manufactured outrage is to understand why, for instance, cultural conservatives are ambivalent about public morality, yet obsessed by private morality, especially sex. A new paper published by the peer-reviewed Politics and Religion Journal by researchers Angus McClay, Alini Poulos and Louise Richardson-Self goes some way to explaining the thinking behind the sex conundrum. According to the paper, it's all about power. McClay, Poulos and Richardson-Self found that the Australian Christian right, much like the American religious right, became increasingly shrill as they became increasingly worried about losing their position of cultural power. And I quote, The Australian Christian right has transitioned from a conservative voice defending the privileges of the Christian majority to a self-described minority seeking to shape social policy to buttress the movement's conservative sexual ideology. The authors said the Australian Christian right, which opposed religious freedom protections when they felt they held the upper hand, now claimed they were the victims of persecution, even though, quote, there seemed to be almost no examples of experiences of concrete harm. Unsurprisingly, the authors concluded that the Christian right's rhetoric, quote, belies a tacit self-interest. Australia's Christian right aren't the only ones who, out of tacit self-interest, cast themselves as a persecuted minority. Australia's sovereign citizen movement are also keen to wrap themselves in the stars and stripes, their preferences for Australia's blood-red maritime flag, and claim dissident status. The sovereign citizens movement, a loose confederacy of individuals and groups who believe that Australian laws and debts do not apply to them, rose to national prominence during Melbourne's anti-lockdown demonstrations in 2021. Two years on, many sovereign citizens have ended up associated with My Place Australia. My Place is not just a creature of the pandemic. It was founded after the 2022 federal election by tradesman Darren Bergworth. Prior to setting up My Place, Bergworth stood as an independent in the seat of Casey, receiving 3,698 votes. According to Crikey, his candidacy was endorsed by Australia One, unregistered political party led by anti-vaccine campaigner Ricardo Bossi. Dunkley, which is a Melbourne seat, was comfortably won by Labor's Peter Murphy, but in a bizarre twist, Bergworth preemptively declared himself the winner five days before Election Day because, and I quote, I am the only candidate left that is not a corporation and doesn't have an ABN. That's an Australian business number. Ironically, the Australian Business Register's website states that Bergworth himself has an ABN, an active ABN. So Bergworth's threats to take the Australian Electoral Commission to the High Court are yet to be carried out. What he has done instead by founding My Place in the Melbourne Sandbelt suburb of Frankston is start a community movement that's gone 
viral. The proliferation of My Place is impressive. The group has more than 100 online chapters in every state and territory, and many of those Facebook groups claim thousands of members. But what is My Place? Think of the group as a suburban Australian version of Brexit. In essence, My Place believes, as stated in a fevered dream of manifesto that appears to have been cribbed from the American Redemption Movement, it believes that Australians are sovereign citizens, not bounded by laws or liable for debts because their governments are not governments, but corporations. According to its national Facebook page, the group aims to Quote, implement a project that allows us to step away from the current systems that are not serving our best interests. In other words, my place wants to establish a separate society within the Commonwealth of Australia. Reading the group's manifesto and following their Facebook accounts, I concluded that Darren Bergworth is serious. Like Lorne Green in Battlestar Galactica, he really is trying to steer his ragtag fugitive fleet of Facebook groups, granola market goers and anti-vaxxers to a place called Earth. In his national TV debut on 7.30 in April, Bergworth, standing amid the thrum of a MyPlace community market in suburban Melbourne, exuded the air of an everyman leader. The interview only became tense when journalist Emily Baker pressed Bergworth about the sharing of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories on My Place's Facebook pages. Bergworth countered by distancing himself from neo-Nazis, but also claimed that, for him, there was a question mark over the Holocaust because, quote, I wasn't there. 7.30 also reported that a My Place strategy document set out the group's plans to target local councils and set up alternative people's councils. Bergworth, for example, was elected mayor of the People's Council of Frankston. Within a month, the extent of my place's local government ambitions became apparent. Its supporters have disrupted dozens of local government council meetings, railing against everything from drag queen story time events to 5G towers to 20-minute neighbourhoods. That's the voguish planning mantra that residents should be within a 20-minute walk of all their daily needs. In Victoria, death threats were made and drag queen events were cancelled and council meetings were closed to the public and the police were called. Monash Council was forced to cancel its drag queen events when it learned that the National Socialist Network, the neo-Nazi group that paraded in front of state parliament in March, intended to show up in force. David Clark, president of the Municipal Association of Victoria, told ABC Melbourne that what we saw is a group of people expressing a view about who should be in society and who should not. Clark is right. The targeting of drag queens is a hate campaign, but that doesn't mean my place is a hate group. My place is more like a farmer's market offering a wide range of organic conspiracies. Some of those conspiracies, such as the anti-trans and anti-Semitic lies, are hateful. Others, such as the claim that 20-minute neighbourhoods are all about population control, are pitiful. 
What my place is doing is tapping into post-lockdown anxiety and intentionally or inadvertently providing cover for and helping normalise hate speech. It is impossible to predict where my place will end up. It could peter out, but it could also create a political base for Bergworth, the wannabe politician, to make a second tilt at federal parliament. The deciding factor will be whether the my place faithful maintain their rage. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review Podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.